0: Hi everyone, Brady here from Nimble This and Volp firm. Welcome back to get your to get your tech on, our show on all things Doxus. This is our third special episode on virtualization in Doxis. With us is our special guest, Asaf Matatayu, Vice President, Solutions and Product Management, Cable Access, Business at Harmonic. Asaf, nice to have you back. How are things in Silicon Valley?
1: Looking good. Thank you for having me back. It's always great to be uh, on uh, on this live stream with you. And uh, Silicon Valley is looking good. It's sunny and bright over here. Um, Still a two-season season. kind of country or uh area where I live in we really don't feel too much other than uh mild weather all year round. So, we're happy to be past the fires.
0: Yeah, no, I can imagine. I actually I love Silicon Valley. I spent spent a couple years living out there. Loved the sun, loved the wonderful weather and the couple of days that you get a rain out there. So, wonderful place yeah. to be. Uh Absolutely. Yeah. Uh before we get started uh like to ask everyone who's going to be listening and watching right now, and also participating in our chat room, please do hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you do like what you're listening to, would love to get a thumbs up from everyone listening. And everyone in the chat room, um, please do you know be interactive. Let us know if you have anything you want us to talk about. Drop it in the chat window. Uh, Asaf, as a recap from our last episode. On our last two episodes, that we've talked about on virtualization, uh, you know, we've covered Kubernetes. We've talked about what virtualization is. We've talked about how the technology um, really kind of builds on itself. So I'd, I'd like to recommend anyone who hasn't catched our last two episodes on virtualization. They're down in the notes, in the show notes uh, in in YouTube. Please do catch those episodes. We're going to be building on top of that in today's discussion and kind of like talking about how that technology can be further used in the industry. So Asaf, uh, as we get started, I'd like to talk about um, what your thoughts were from SCTE Cable Tech Expo, maybe anything that you saw that kind of builds on what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. Uh, unique,
1: uh, unique year, unique show. I'm glad to see that they were able to put something together. Uh, it was a great opportunity um, to be able to see all the different speaking sessions. And, and I hope everybody had an opportunity uh, to see that this year. Obviously, we, we miss uh, meeting with people face to face and having those um, unscheduled interactions. Um, but the show was really busy for us. Uh, we we had great interactions uh, and and the and the trends are are not surprising in terms of um, the relationship with COVID and, and the pressure in the upstream and traffic uh, and looking forward and and making sure that uh, there's a path to uh, having better uh, experiences and and faster uh, speeds. So um, and then connecting that uh, clearly with all kinds of different access mediums because. And, you know, globally and, and particularly also in the U.S., uh, cable operators are not only cable, That you know, you got fiber to the home. You're looking at wireless, wireless backhaul. You're looking at all kinds of different sorts of ways of making sure um, the Internet um, is a mission critical service, uh, especially in the time of COVID. So um, I, I thought SETE and, and the different sessions that I participated in paid um, some focus on that, um, which is very important.
0: Cool. Uh, Was there, you know, maybe any technologies or anything that you saw that was surprising or new to you at Expo? Um, Look, I
1: I think that the technologies are. uh, So, no, I would say I think that uh, there isn't anything terribly um, shocking or new that occurred in terms of a new technology that was revealed I think uh, DOCSIS 4.0 is well on its path and and will provide uh, that aspect of the physical layer in terms of integration in the 10G initiatives with which uh, which uh, cable labs has pushed forward uh, before the show that that was something that's kind of in process but also attending to increase speeds reliability security and latency which are really important those four pillars uh, that that was emphasized. Ah, uh, low latency doxis um, w- was part of the discussion. You know that was that that's something that's been talked about before the show. Um, DAA is something uh, regardless of what form of DAA, whether it's uh, remote fi or FMA, those are all things that were. I think FMA the specs were were revealed just before the show. I think they were uh, announced on September thirtieth. So. That was something that was a bit fresh in terms of that, but there, you know, FMA has, has been in the works for for a while. And last but not least, virtualization is something we've been talking about for quite a few years, and has has been in deployment uh, for quite a few years. So, from that perspective, these technologies are, are, are available, which is a good thing. It's nice to have technologies that are that are here and now that can be used to address real world challenges. Um, and then to expand on them and, and to leverage them because I think they those those technologies are are enablers um, so it's a great opportunity to enable um, and address different challenges that um, that are present these days
0: cool yeah, so uh, I kind of think we see about the same thing where uh, we're kind of in a unique realm right now we're we're in between Doxis 3.1 and in between fully rolling out Doxis 4.0 so it's bringing some unique challenges as far as you know what new technologies are coming out but I think it does bring us into things like you know maybe symmetrical doxis so we kind of see that into the horizon mm-hmm. but I think that leads us into sort of the you know virtualization and and a, how does virtualization play into maybe symmetrical doxis so is you know is there is there a difference when we talk about a, a standard CMTS versus a virtual CMTS from a symmetrical world. And, and how you know can a virtual CMTS fully support symmetrical DOCSIS?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. So we actually announced uh, symmetric speeds uh, for DoxiS 3.1. Obviously that's the, those are the maximum speeds you can get. Uh, and last year's show in 2019, we were just trying to show what you can get to a single port. So we were showing about eight eight gigs down and and nearly two gigs up on a 1.2 gigahertz plant with a 204 megahertz uh, split with two off DMAs. Just trying to show what how many bits you could squeeze on the pipe. So together, that's that's 10 gig. And then then the question this year was, well, how much how much bits can you take to a single subscriber, right? In terms of service. And that's something that, that we've had uh, and in, de- in some deployments, uh, being able to do two and a half, uh, the capability of showing two and a half gig down and one point two approximately 1.2 gig up. Um, so definitely uh, being able to do more than one gig symmetric uh, to a single household, uh, which is fantastic speeds um, and it shows you what DOCSIS 301 is capable of as a technology. But also, in terms of um, virtualization uh, when you think about the ability to have the elastic deployment and and being able to to leverage your resources uh, to the maximum uh, capability because uh, you know different uh, markets or different uh, customers are going to have different speed tiers um, and different service groups are going to have different uh, uh, utilization uh, and different I would say uh, bandwidth pressures so I think being able to address um, bandwidth pressures with software-based approaches um, is something um, that will adapt to the dynamic nature of of the, of the pressures from from a bandwidth point of view.
0: Right. And what was it again that you, that the speeds, both downstream and upstream, that you were doing for a single subscriber? Again, that you the testing that you were doing.
1: We were showing demos of two and a half gig down and one point two gig up. And we we did announce some uh, some live deployments with over one point two gigs of metric in, in live subscriber services. So um if somebody's really interested, uh, I encourage you to go look at we, we did have a press release on those things. So the the information behind that is is definitely there.
0: So no, it's it's impressive that we can do that. I, I, I my question I think is are you doing that for academic purposes or you know, just to so, prove, hey, we can do this? No. Or do you see in the future that w- we are going to have um, MSOs and, and subscribers that actually want these speeds, in if, you know, if not the immediate future, but in the near future? And, and if so, what is, what is the driver behind that?
1: For sure. I think there are two. For, the answer is yes. I think there is pressure to do that, number one. And number, number two, um, you don't need a lot of subscribers with the need. Uh, to drive the use you know the use case right um, so for us the the biggest pressure is in the upstream uh, as of these days right I, I guess it's this uh virtuous cycle cyclical thing where it's you know there 's a downstream pressure then there's upstream pressures, and we try to accommodate those things from year to year in terms of uh, uh customer or subscriber behavior um, but with people working from home with with uh, at least i know uh, I'm running out of my data plan in terms of I'm spending more money. I, uh, I'm i going over my 1.2 terabyte um, cap. Why is that? Why am I running out? Well, it, it's my downstream plus my upstream. So you think, well, everybody's streaming video in my house, right? Everybody's on a Zoom call. Everybody's watching Netflix. My son's playing video games. Where's the pressure there? I could talk about it from my perspective and why I think it's a, it's such a real thing. Well, when I look at my data usage actually it's the upstream it's almost uh half of it and and why is that i have 3 nest cameras okay um each and i can only support it at the lowest res because otherwise i'll blow my quota even more uh which will cost me more money um so there's pressure in the upstream because of all this cloud based video and then i have um everything backed up in the cloud uh so that pushes all these uh, high-res videos now that we have all these amazing devices in our hands with 4k video um, that consumes storage and that storage gets backed up in the cloud. So there's, and then of course, video conferencing, right? So we, we, we could look at uh, when we do video conferencing, then that that's basically symmetric, uh, uh, a symmetric uh, application as well. So that puts pressure from a symmetric uh, use case and, and real world need that almost everybody has that, is one, one driver. The other driver is competition, right? Um, if you look at Fiber to the Home, they, they pitch symmetric services and symmetric services. So you, you need to, if you're a cable operator, you want to be able to compete with that. So I don't think it's an academic thing. I, I think uh, having symmetric one gig services, definitely, uh, or symmetric 500 meg services, but the ability to have symmetric services um, and higher speed upstream capabilities uh, it, uh, definitely addresses um, a residential and real world, um, uh, challenge. Yeah. So, I, can, I I can, I, let me just make one more point. My, my service right now is 600 meg down by 15 meg up. So I have a good tier, but you know, you can see the disparity between my down versus my up. If I had a choice, if I had an opportunity to get even more upstream, I would. Yeah. So and we I, get
0: a lot of comments from subscribers that are Outside of the industry, but they write into our channel that they they they're complaining That they have cable service. They have great downstream speeds, but they have really poor upstream speeds kind of like what you're saying You know, maybe they have 50 down or 300 down, but their upstream is only 10. They don't understand uh, that we have a limited upstream currently in our industry for the upstream, and that that really throttles their upstream bandwidth. So I think symmetry, getting that symmetrical you know it, it's not it may not be perfectly symmetrical, but it's going to add a lot more bandwidth in return is really important for us. Do you see that um, because we're on the topic of virtualization, do you see that virtualization leads to uh, a more streamlined or or a more efficient way to get to a symmetric upstream? Versus a non-virtualized environment,
1: uh, I, I think that it helps. I, I think so when you, when you have compute resources, so just to remind ourselves, when we think about cloud native virtualization, we're doing data management and control plane processing in in uh, in software. And with cloud native, we're doing four things. And again, Brady, you mentioned the previous sessions we had. We dove deep into. Uh, you know, kind of the pillars of cloud-native virtualization, which is containerization, dynamic orchestration. We're using Kubernetes, uh, microservices, and basically using uh, off-the-shelf servers, all right? Um, what does that mean? It allows us to deploy uh, resources, compute. So you have general compute resources, and they can be deployed um, locally on-prem. They can be deployed in a, in a public or private cloud, or they could be deployed... Um, at the edge, maybe in a node enclosure. Um, and the opportunity there is, and, and, um, which will lead me back to answering your question, is that if, if you have pressure um, you know, in a particular area, um, being able to churn up, orchestrate, churn up dynamically um, a service group or, or a service group that has a higher throughput data plane, higher speeds capability, Um, then you're able to do that without human intervention. So you you could see maybe upstream utilization pressures or downstream if that were to be the case and and really understand that you need to turn up more uh, uh, data plane resources uh, to accommodate uh, those potential higher speeds. Um, You you can also uh, play with how many service groups particularly are in a pod, just to remind everybody a pod is kind of the unit of replication of an, of an application in, in, this, uh, in this platform. So if you have a pod with um, one service group or four service groups, um, you, you can play around with how many service groups are in the pod, uh, you know, dynamically to address um, the maximum throughputs that each particular service group uh, can um, basically deliver in the downstream or in the upstream. So being able to, to, to play around with the elastically uh, to address the dynamic pressures, bandwidth pressures, um, I think is a, is a benefit and something that's unique to having a software-based and virtual approach. Um, so I hope I answered your question. I kind of went a long way around it, but I was trying to build the story of what tools are there to address this ability to elastically um, and dynamically address uh, subscriber uh, bandwidth needs.
0: Yeah, so I mean, let me make sure I understand it. So if if I don't understand it, I, I don't. A lot of people may not understand it. So what I think what you're saying is, if we need capacity, additional capacity, or if we want to change, let's say we want to change the split in a service group or a fiber node. Adding a, a new pod or adding more capacity, what you're suggesting is in a virtualized environment, it's easier to deploy more software resources into that fiber node or into that service group rather than if we have standard hardware or standard line cards. Um, we may have a CMTS that's full, you know, it's just full of line cards. So if we want to add another line card to that service group to add more upstream capacity in this particular example, adding that additional line card may mean that we have to go out and buy another chassis and put a line card in that chassis in order to achieve what our goals are. And that new line card might be a line card that's no longer a line card that uh, just has a 42 megahertz cutoff or a 65 megahertz or an 85 megahertz cutoff because you know the line cards that we have are restricted physically. They can't go any higher than 85 megahertz. So now what I'm saying is, if i want to go to say a 200 megahertz split i have to actually go into a a new system a, a new architecture a new you know a a higher capacity line card than what i have and this means like a four click fork lift upgrade to my cmts so if we look now to a software environment which you know i i used to be a hardware guy i used to build rf equipment now i'm a software guy and that's that's what excited me so much about software From a software standpoint, we can say, well, you know, right now, my split is this, but because we have flexibility in the software, provided the hardware has, and that's, that's where I'm going to ask you about on the hardware. If the software has the flexibility, we're going to move our split from 85 to 200 megahertz. My question to you is the software might have the capability, but what if the hardware doesn't? How do you, you know, your hardware doesn't, doesn't change that split. So how do you still get over the hardware limitations?
1: I'm glad you, you elaborated on that. So I agree with everything you said about the line card replacements and hardware chassis and all that. And and, um, and it's true, the software on the core doesn't care. It needs to be configured, but it, it's done dynamically to configure the split, right? So if you're doing uh, whatever the split may be, 4265, 85, 204, what, whatever it may be. And even if you look at DOCSIS 4.0, um that's a software upgrade and a configuration change on the core, right? It's not replacing cards, it's leveraging the exact set set of servers uh to accommodate that. Um so that, that's where uh that flexibility and software creatability future-proofing comes in. But it's true that um you're not getting rid of the RF, right? You still have that um that physical layer processing, which is now in the in the DAA node, right? Uh whether it's FMA or 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 remote fi or whatever it is, uh, there's going to be um a, a split configuration um in, in the node. So I mean I can only talk about what harmonica is doing from our products point of view. We actually have uh pluggable diplexers in our in our uh in our node. So it's a field upgradable option we have in our, in, our, in our node product that addresses the ability to move from one uh, type of split to, the, to, the, to another type of split. And then the rest, the rest is uh, programmable um, from the core. So there is, there is a, a little piece of hardware that's field upgradable to change the different splits, um, but the rest is all software configurable.
0: All right, so you still are limited at that that last edge piece, and and is that like the RPD or the the fiber node? Is is that what your limitation is? Uh,
1: yeah, the capability of the split is 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 physically dictated by the hardware in the outdoor node enclosure, which is uh, could be a variety of different styles, right? Um, I know at least with us we. We work with our own nodes and we actually have a remote device that integrates into third party uh, node enclosures as well. And typically uh, the, the, the diplexer, right, the um, piece of it is part of the node enclosure uh, uh, independently from the remote device. So I wanted to separate if you think about what's inside the no- node enclosure, um, you know, the remote device module itself is, is software configurable to the split. But the actual diplexer itself is, is 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 a part of the node enclosure independently. Okay.
0: Makes sense. Does that make sense, Brady? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I I mean it's 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 a story that I understand because the software piece, the head end piece is is a lot more flexible than if I have a physical piece of like a physical chassis. But we still have some limitations when we talk about fiber nodes and, and things when we get to the RF portion that that is not software upgradable, unfortunately not yet that's true yeah um i want to jump to the chat room jason Roop says can you talk about fcaps fcaps changes with virtualization in particular to the fns part the Sorry. fns yeah fcaps i'm actually not yeah. familiar with this initialism so you're gonna enlighten me i hope um
1: let me remember. I remember I know what F-caps is, but I forgot what each letter stands for. We could easily look that up. Um, I've used that term a lot, but I. Um, should we look it up, Brady? We have the power of the Internet. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to cheat. Um, so let's repeat that question. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining, Paul, Jason, because you stumped Paul, us Paul on this c- one. Fault configuration, accounting, performance, and security. Um, so let's look back at the question and try to address it. So
0: which, which can you, the... Can you talk about FCAPS, changes with virtualization? So he's talking about the file and security part. So he, may, he must be interested in you know, how, how is it The fault secure? and
1: security. Oh, the fault and security fault part. And security. The F, yeah, fault. Okay. I, when you said it, I thought you. The, it wasn't an and, it was an N. And I didn't know what F and S stands for. It's F and S. Okay. Default and security. Sure. So first of all, it's a good question. I I, I think I know where you're coming from. So it, it, with a cloud native approach, when you have each of these pods independently of each other, it really helps with fault tolerance. What, what does that mean? So in a chassis-based solution, e- even when you have line cards, you might have a piece of hardware fail, like a line card will fail. You have to replace it. Or a chassis will fail. And then you have to think about... Um, uh, kind of the impact, right? How many subscribers could be impacted with that type of failure? Um, so you can have 20,000 subscribers impacted uh, with a failure that's in a hardware-based solution. Um, when you have a software or a cloud-native-based solution, it, it, with the fault tolerance is built into the architecture by having one pod fail over to another pod. So it depends d- depends on you know the size of your pod and the application that's running there. If your pod is a CMTS and you're, you know, you have a 100 modem service group, then you know it's limited to those 100 modems if you were to have one service group in one pod, if that was your equivalent. You can imagine each pod would be an independent virtual CMTS, and then the failure would be isolated to that single virtual CMTS. Now, the, the great thing about that is it doesn't only address fault tolerance. It, it's also very valuable from an up- upgradability perspective, because when you want to upgrade, you, you might choose to upgrade um, a single protection group, or very few uh, you know you, you wouldn't have to upgrade your entire chassis. you can upgrade uh, a, a single operating domain, let's call it um so a, a a handful of service groups as opposed to all of the service groups um so it it plays in both ways in terms of being able to address uh, fault tolerance and upgradability. and in terms of of security, um there are a lot of modern cloud native tools. Uh, security is a multi-pronged uh, domain. Uh, you could talk about e- e- attacks, you could talk about uh, you know AAA, you could talk about um, uh, encryption. You could talk about all kinds of different security aspects. Um, but there are powerful uh, security capabilities that are out there um, that are software based that enable us to continue to adapt our security uh, infrastructure. Uh, I, I know we recently, and we continue to upgrade some of our security practices on our software. Um, and that's something that we can easily address because we can basically upgrade a container or isolate those changes to a particular area of our platform and, and address the, the ever-changing world of security needs. So it's, it's not something that stays fixed that you're done with. Security is gonna be something that is a, a, a forever ongoing uh, endeavor.
0: So, uh, thanks for the question, Jason. Actually, it's a really good question, and and I think something we didn't cover, uh, Soph, when we were talking about Kubernetes, some of the things that we get from Kubernetes is the fault tolerance, which when a pod goes down, Kubernetes is constantly monitoring that and restores that pod. So this is something we've recently introduced into our P and M application, and that's mm-hmm. it's like a benefit you get. So. You know, when when their services are running in our PNM application, if something crashes, Kubernetes notices that and brings it back up, restores that pod. Just as you're saying, if, if, you know, kind of like a virtual line card goes down in your virtualized environment, Kubernetes notices that and just restores it automatically. We have the same thing in our PNM application. And then from the security standpoint, there's a lot of security aspects within Kubernetes that make sure that... Uh, Kubernetes says, "Hey, uh, someone—only certain services are allowed to access this pod—and it restricts everyone else. So there's there's a lot of that built-in security that ensures that yeah. um, you know someone someone just can't access a pod unless they are authenticated by Kubernetes. And those are some really cool features that are they're in there. So kind of diverse, you know, getting back into the Kubernetes conversation. But uh, we'll blame Jason on that one."
1: Yeah, look, I think that you, that aspect of Kubernetes is super important in the world of mission critical infrastructure. Um, if there's a a fault, you don't want to lose your voice call. It's not tolerable, right? So uh, let's break it back to the user experience. So if you do have a fault um, and something needs to happen, um, isolating it to the fewest possible subscribers is a huge benefit, and then being able uh, to augment, you know, to have protection groups, or to have uh, um, basically built-in capabilities to address different types of software faults, which, uh, let's be uh, honest with ourselves, definitely uh, out, um, well, they happen more frequently than hardware-based faults.
0: Yeah, definitely. Blue screen of death is a perfect example that a lot of people have experienced. What would be nice though with the blue screen of death is if you had someone monitoring that Windows environment and said, hey, it just crashed, let's automatically uh, uh, refresh it, get rid of any issues with it, and and automatically create a brand new Windows install so it's fresh and we got rid of all the gremlins that were in there that was causing it to crash. So and yeah. I, I think you know, if you can think of it from that standpoint, that's basically what's happening with Kubernetes. It, it monitors that, detects it, says something crashed, makes it goes away, and, and you don't see it again. Another aspect of Kubernetes, and we're talking about these containers, is you can bring other containers in that other people have built. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so I think that's something. Um, so one of the one of the uh, presentations that I went to at Expo was yours, and and you showed me some of the okay. cool things that, um, that you're able to do, as sure. far as like bringing in other services and leverage that in a virtualized environment. And and I think that's something that's really challenging in a non virtualized environment.
1: Absolutely. I mean, while the services might be deployed independently and you think of them as silos, uh, it's great to have a unified platform which allows us to consolidate these and, and then decide where these services need to run. And, and let's be more specific. Uh, at Expo this year, uh, we showed uh, our, cloud, our, our cloud native platform, our capabilities cloud native platform serving um, multiple applications. Uh, in particular, we were showing uh, a virtual CMTS running with, with Pawn uh, with uh, virtual olt running with remote OLT, uh doing um all kinds of high speed traffic simultaneously um, we mentioned symmetric doxa services but also um, symmetric uh pawn services um, ten gig and, and in addition to that we we put in a um a speed server uh inside as an application so typically when somebody does a a speed test uh the speed server they're reaching is somewhere else in the internet, right? You know, you'll probably notice, oh, your speed server is located in, I don't know, I did one this morning. Uh, it's in Santa Cruz. I don't know why. It's whatever miles away, right? And um, happens to be 40 miles away from me. So um, we actually brought the speed server uh, to show the speeds associated with the Doxis Axis portion of the leak by by actually having it as a, as a pod Right, Deployed as a container inside, inside our cloud-native cluster. Okay, And that allowed us to focus on the speeds and the latency uh, to the server itself and, and to look at the DOCSIS aspect or that portion of the network um, specifically. So that, that's great. Bringing that closer to the subscriber helps us uh, isolate and understand exactly the speeds associated with, with that part of the access network. Equally so for a pon network, right? I mean, the same the same could be true. Um, other examples uh, of uh, applications that would benefit a subscriber by bringing it closer for is like a CDN or video caching, right? Um, is being able to have the that content closer to the subscriber once it's it's um, it's it's brought closer in from the origin server, uh, so. Uh, your channel changes and the content, your, your channel changes are faster, your, the content is available faster, uh, the amount of traffic that's, that's crossing across the, your network um, is reduced. Um, so there's all kinds of benefits of bringing certain applications closer. Well, what's the enabler there? The enabler is being able to put in multiple pods, different types of pods, different types of applications. that are all running on the exact same platform. Um, and this, that's just the tip of the iceberg, really, when you think about it. Um, and again, they benefit with these you know, F-caps. I'm going to start using that more often in all my, in all my sessions here. You, know, you could leverage the benefits of F-caps, um, particularly the F part, uh, the fault tolerance and upgradability of being able to do that.
0: I'm going to come back to the speed test because I, I have some discussion I want to do on that in a pause. But we, we have a question here from uh, Tom. Tomas and and I, I I'm, not, I'm just going to skip your last name Tomas, but he says what if Kubernetes crashes and and I have my uh, I have my solution on this but I'm I'm really curious uh, uh, if you can speak to this, Asaf.
1: The answer is I I honestly don't
0: know. Um, we haven't had
1: we haven't had a, a case that I'm aware of uh, where Kubernetes it, itself has crashed. Um, so it's a good question. You know, inevitably it. it you know you have to look at being able to detect and recover from different crashes uh whether it's the platform or the application that resides on top of it um, so uh, the things that are most tolerant are the applications or the pods that sit on top of the uh, of the platform and if there were to be a platform uh crash there, there's probably there's resiliency in there to detect and recover from it uh but to what extent and what types of crashes uh, uh, I honestly uh, can't answer that um, without having that experience.
0: Well, I, I've got a deal for you then, because we, we have a solution. We have a, a Kubernetes cluster. So there's three Kubernetes uh, running. One's a master at any time. If the master fails, then it it, yeah. it, it fails over. So you oh, can set up Kubernetes in a high availability environment. And and that's what we do in our NimbleDisk PNM application. So um, really, you can that have... Is- two masters or you can have two kubernetes crashes and still have a a third one that will back that up
1: yeah so that's a good point brady and and that's in fact we we do have that um i just so fair enough i think that answers the question in in that particular way Uh, i just i can't recall the last time we've had a kubernetes crash that actually has taken that in, in place but we but in fact we do have three instances of like you mentioned
0: so okay that, that totally makes sense then and I, I think that's pretty standard like kubernetes has that as a as a reference architecture to put that out there
1: they do and if you go actually to kubernetes.io their website they'll they'll show that as well yeah um but I, I thought he was so this goes back in to the app in,
0: in the uh in the f caps um the F caps, uh, yeah, F caps. So the fault tolerance in, yeah. in this whole, in this whole architecture of of Kubernetes and virtualization right. is really meant to be highly, highly fault tolerant.
1: Right. And why do you need three? Right. I mean, they go into that. The reason you need three yeah. is you you need to have an election process, so you don't have split brain and and that that you know that you you either have one or three. You don't have two as your right. starting point. So, but um, that that's I, I think that's a pretty well known thing in that in that domain yeah
0: so so back to the speed test the fact that you're putting speed test in things and then when we talk we've talked about edge compute before so in, in theory you could put a speed test in a fiber node a speed test in the c you know in, in your cmts your virtual cmts and then have a c, speed test uh further out in the network um, you know, at, at the edge of the, the cable operator's network, and then, you know, the regular speed test servers, wherever they are. And now you could start segmenting, you know, as part of your network, your regular network test, your proactive network test. You could speed test to the node. You could speed test to the C-cap. So now you're se- segmenting out and testing your CIN, the digital connection between the C-cap and the fiber node, that the RPD. And then also to the basically the edge of the cable operator's network, so you could have these these small segmented speed tests throughout, which allow you to monitor your congestion anywhere. So I, I'm curious if this is something that you guys have thought about, or if this is like in discussion.
1: We we're not um, we are showing possibilities right now when it comes to the speed test. We, we're not actually deploying a, a speed test server uh, and and in any cable operator's network. Um, but I do think it's an opportunity that we should look at, and, and uh, or cable operators should look at. And this is an enabler. The platform enables that sort of decision-making, right? And hopefully, uh, the maximum speed you're getting, regardless of where your speed test server is, is um, going to be the same. Otherwise, there's, well, it would reveal congestion points, right? Um, a funneled congestion point somewhere in the network um but you will you will reveal uh different latency obviously the latency to uh to the speed, tell, speed speed test server uh you know that's uh whatever fifty feet away versus fifty miles away versus uh you know a thousand miles away uh is going to be different um so and the general will be different i guess those are the typical numbers speed test results give us. On our handheld devices mm-hmm. when we do things is is speed latency and jitter so um it would be useful It'd be interesting if if you ran that and, and figured that out. I know when I do speed tests, I actually have two speed tests in my house um, I have a google mesh and 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 it's wired to my cable modem and uh that allows me to run a speed test server um that doesn't go over my Wi-Fi and doesn't have to do with any service that's running simultaneously. So that helps me isolate very quickly. If, if the problem is, is in, in the DOCSIS network or, you know, upstream of my house um, or if it's a speed issue within my house. Um, so it's, that's an example of being able to, at least for me, what I can control to isolate if there's a speed issue, uh, whether it's in my house or outside my house and that, and your example of, of having a speed test server in the node in the head end or in the cloud is another example of being able to then isolate potentially um, where speed issues might exist.
0: Yeah. And I, I make this point because I think the way we do speed tests today as an industry is not optimal and is definitely something that we see as being basically a you know, we well I've heard people mention speed tests is the killer app of the of the internet right now. And especially yeah. as we get higher and higher speeds, that is the way subscribers measure very frequently the quality of their service or the, the quality, not I wouldn't say the quality of their experience, but at least the quality of their service that's being delivered to them. They run speed tests all the time. And as you said, frequently these speed tests go to some server that's forty miles away from them. It's not really measuring the quality of the service that's being delivered by their cable operator. It's measuring the speed test to some server that is many, many uh, uh, relays, many, many hops away from them. And so having the ability to have speed test servers at different points in the network and really do a very good job of measuring those hops, I think, is a a very value-added service to operators.
1: I I completely agree. I mean, the problems. Um, well, we we had virtual uh, conferences this year, but if I think about 2019, I don't know what conference I didn't go to, where it didn't matter what topic, it all went down to Wi-Fi. It, it, even though Wi-Fi wasn't a, a point of discussion, it was, everything quickly evolved into um, subscribers having speed issues and. It becomes a Wi-Fi discussion. You know the expectations of um, within your house on a uh, on a Wi-Fi based device. You know how how are you getting to the speeds that you expect? So it's a combination of so many things, right? The, the where the speed test server exists, but then um, your Wi-Fi network, and then of course you, the the actual device is it capable of of reaching those speeds? I mean sometimes, you know, you different devices. Uh, at least more modern devices are capable of doing symmetric gig, right? But imagine getting a device and trying, you, know, you subscribe to a one gig service and, and your device isn't capable of doing that um, or using a handheld device on the other side of your house. It's not going to be your DOCSIS network. Yep. Um, so it's very important uh, to understand those things and, under, and and then being able to inspect and measure that to isolate exactly what the issue is. Is uh, well, it's not trivial,
0: right? So we we move on from speed tests, and, and at last year's Cable Tech Expo, there were a lot of presentations and displays on low latency DOCSIS and low latency Xhaul, and and the strides that everyone was making on it at this year's Cable Tech Expo, that was kind of vacant. There was there's it just seems like there's been no progress made since last year on low-latency doxis, Yet the gaming industry is, con- especially since COVID, the gaming industry is continuing to go rampant when everyone's gaming because there's not a lot of sports happening during COVID. Although I did see one presentation, which happened to be yours, where there seems to be more progress being made on low-latency doxis. So I was really, really happy to see that. And I, I wonder if you can talk at all about that. Sure. Uh...
1: Thanks. So low latency um, XHAL and low latency DOCSIS are two different. uh, There's a special LLX standard that is being worked on, and specifications, I should say, in in cable labs, and a lot of progress is being made there. Um, And when we're talking about low latency DOCSIS, there's actually a section in DOCSIS 3.1 that was added, section, I think, 7.7. And they added quite a few tools in there. Uh, seven or eight different tools, um, like uh, PGS flows, and uh, as an example. Um, but you know, definitely uh, different tools uh, that are going to be useful uh, for minimizing the the uh, the low latency. To, to and, and it doesn't matter whether you're FMA or remote I mean, they, these tools are going to be um, useful no matter what um but if you go to i think cable labs has done a fantastic job with their website they if you go to and look up cable labs low latency doxis they give an overview of what that is um what the specs are it's all publicly available and they talk about um you know non queue building traffic when you think about non queue building applications examples of those things to to for folks who that that word might be a little too fancy for them uh online gaming is is a, is the most popular example I could think of, but you know video calling being smooth is an example of of uh, uh is is an example of a non queue building traffic as well so video conferencing we'd like to have lower latencies as well um, uh, web you know web pages lo- loading faster is another example but generally speaking gaming is is a, i would say the the number one uh use case that that we're looking at. All right, and and the tools that Cable Labs defined um, they're extensive, and they address different elements of that, uh, but they do re- require um, different parties to participate in that, right? The CMTS supplier needs to develop those, uh, interrupt with the, with the modems that have that software in there, um, application marking, so if the gamers are going to mark their traffic. Um, so there's an ecosystem of interoperability there um, that would enable those mechanisms to bear fruit, um, and I, I think, without exception, all, all the CMTS and CM suppliers are are um, are going to invest in that, and and, and it'll it takes take time, time for that,
0: right? It, yeah, I it's going to take time, it's for time for that and to work out. to get that that type of stuff integrated. And we've seen that with a lot of different um, uh, technologies that have been developed, it takes time, a long time right, to so, get these integrated in. And, and then, yeah, and you mentioned the gamers. I mean, how do we get the gaming companies to integrate this technology in?
1: Yeah, and there's gonna be new games and new applications. So uh, I think that's, if you, I, I went to the sessions, and listen to it. And there has been progress in the last years in terms of experiments and interops. Cable Labs is holding interops, and there has been um, a lot of data. So I think there there are papers out there. I know for a fact there are papers out there that talk about uh, different uh, advancements and how to measure latency. Um, you know there were papers focused on on the low latency uh, aggregate service flows in the upstream um, PGS results. Um, but I, I think without exception, the number one takeaway I had, which is something that Harmonic reached, uh, as a conclusion, uh, you know, more than a year ago is the most important thing you have to be able to do is to separate queue building from non Q building traffic. I'm not, I don't think I'm saying anything that is surprising, shocking, or unknown. I, I just think that that was a prevailing conclusion, regardless of what session you want to. So at least what we're trying to do on the path towards you know implementing DOCSIS 3.1 section 7.7 is to address what we can um, uh, look at from a DOCSIS 3.0 perspective. So how can you uh separate queue building from non-cube building traffic without forcing the applications uh to do anything? Um you're not dependent on on gamer gaming traffic to be marked. So that that's something, uh, basically use the traffic as it is. So th- don't depend on, on third party to do anything. And the second part of that is is making sure that, it, that you can um, have it run on docs 3.0 modem population that already exists, obviously with 3.1, 3.0 modem population that exists. Um, and the third piece is From our experience is, first of all, low latency is important. Getting the minimum number down has value. Um, But the more important uh, metric that we're looking at is latency jitter. Um, So you can minimize the low number low, but if it bumps up, you're going to have a bad gaming experience. So if you took your latency from 20 milliseconds to 5, but every once in a while it went from 5 to 20 or to 30 you know your frames per second on your game or on your on your game is going to change it's going to adapt to that
0: it's going and it's going to make for a poor experience the variation that you're talking exactly.
1: about exactly so more
0: you know the getting the
1: low number lower is great but the first thing to do is to get it to be stable
0: consistent so, we we want good consistency and if it remains consistent the gaming experience is going to be good
1: that's exactly right so that's that's i think the most urgent thing to address to improve the gamers experience um, is to have consistent late lag jitter or latency jitter, and just make sure that that gaming experience is, is not moving all the time. I mean, I could tell you uh, with, with COVID, I'm riding an indoor bike. I'm using Zwift. There's this, this, I didn't think I was a gamer until I saw frames per second and a pink time in the corner of my, my Zwift app. And I, and I could see, um exactly uh when my son's playing these video games and my netflix and my interactive session with this virtual world of me riding my bike all all of a sudden hey you know everything slows down and my, you know my the resolution goes down and and i'm at 20 frames per second instead of at 60 and and
0: uh, then i realized hey i'm a gamer too <laughs> so so you're you're separating Q building versus non-Q building. The the Q building is the is your gaming traffic, right? Is, or is your bike riding traffic. The the Q
1: building the it's the non-Q the gaming traffic is the non-Q building. Non-Q
0: building. Okay. And and basically you're just doing this by looking at the statistics or looking at the traffic types doing statistical analysis, right? Um yeah, uh well, we're doing
1: some secret sauce. Secret sauce. We are we're, we're yeah. We've invested a lot of time in and looking at analyzing and analyzing and understanding how to intelligently uh separate queue building from non-queue building traffic, low latency traffic from non-low latency uh sensitive traffic. Um so how we do that what we do is is something that I like to think um We'll we'll stay uh, a secret sauce.
0: Okay. Uh, Have you done this just in lab or have you done this in real-world deployments to to actually prove that it works? It's not in
1: a real-world deployment right now. Um, We're working with a couple of customers in trials. Okay. So um, hopefully those trials... We look forward to having those trials become successful. um, and, And then we can we'll have more experience rolling it out. We so we have it in our labs, we have it in customer labs and we're trialing it.
0: What what's uh what do you think the time frame is to to when you'll know that this is successful and possible? We're looking for early next year, early 2021, so okay. Q1. Yeah. So I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be looking forward and following back up with you to see like how this is progressing because I think low latency is really important to our industry to remain competitive. Especially as I mean, obviously, internet is critical, mission critical for us. But we're starting to see things like, as you said, gaming. What we're doing right now, talking over the internet and video, you know, live format and stuff, is becoming more and more critical. Mm-hmm. But we're only going to see this continue to grow and become more important. And I think having a solution for gaming, for bicycle ride, I mean, for whatever you're doing, that it just ensures that you don't run into things. And and in a daytime, it's not normally as bad, but at, you know, depending on where you live, depending on when peak hours are, it can get really, really bad. I experience this myself. I'm a gamer. so <laughs> I, I see it get really bad sometimes, and I'd like to see that solution out there sooner. Rather than later, so I'm looking forward to what your results are in the new year. Um, so you mentioned Absolutely. pawn. How uh, you know pawn is being solutions that integrated in. How do you how do you manage pawn in a in a virtualized environment?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So so it's very similar, right? The architecture is the same. It runs on the same platform. It runs uh, together. Um, it's complementary, um, and that—that's that's. So, how does it run? So, if we need to add a, a pawn port or a OLT port, we could turn up a a pawn uh, virtual OLT or virtual BNG pod in our cloud native platform, um, and and basically as those get deployed, we could turn up these pods dynamically. Okay and if on the same platform we have another doxa service group um then that can coexist with with those uh olt deployments um so it shows you the benefit of being able to dynamically adapt to the the the, the deployment needs on the same platform without um impacting your existing uh services so while the services might look different to a subscriber hey i'm 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 getting fiber FTTH or pond versus Doxis. The services aren't siloed necessarily inside the platform; they're unified. And then, from an orchestration and monitoring point of view, you, you could look at it um, uh, with similar dashboards and si- similar virtualizations, and, uh, visualizations, and w- with uh, similar alert and monitoring infrastructure. So, there's a lot to leverage there. So there there's a lot of benefit there as well with the fcaps right it still uses the same um fault tolerant approach um with the pods backing each other up or respending up as needed so how is that done right it's just a separate application running um on on the same platform
0: and i and i think that's kind of the big takeaway from the virtualized environment is you really don't care whether it's docs is running on there, Pawn, a speed test, something else. Um, You can run lots of different services in a virtualized world, in a virtualized environment. It just depends on what the very endpoint is. I mean, I talked about- Maybe even a PMA app. Maybe even a PMA app. Anything you want to run on there, it just depends now, how do you communicate with the outside world? The PMA app might be communicating via a, a, a REST API. The DOXIS app is communicating to an RPD, which gives you the extension to the physical plant. The pawn app is talking. What's the, what does the pawn app talk to? What's the endpoint to that? To an ONT or an ONU? Yeah, exactly. ONU. ONU. So hardware. You, you, yeah. So Yeah, I,
1: so we so we'd have our virtual OLT, virtual BNG applications running virtually as pods on the cluster. We have a remote OLT uh pluggable that fits into our remote FI device so that remote FI device puts out rf or 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 pon um, and then you know doxus connects to cable modems and and the pon connects to um onus yeah
0: so Tomas in a chat room says can we configure pon the same uh, from the same cli as vcmts absolutely that's short Perfect question. Thank you.
1: I've said that word
0: too many. It's like my favorite <laughs> word during the
1: during today's uh, stream. Um, Tomas, you probably have my number. You have my email, probably. Uh, let Let's have a chat. If you <laughs> awesome. have, no, seriously. If you have if you have more detailed questions, uh, feel free to reach out to me, um, and I'll we'll be happy to answer your questions. Yes. If we don't address them here.
0: All right, so we we are at the top of the hour, Asaf. Um, anything you want to plug that's coming up?
1: Hey, we had a great show, and we announced a lot of great things. And I'm hoping folks who who didn't get a chance uh, to see those uh, press releases and those announcements can can visit them. Uh, you know, from our from our perspective, we we had a lot of excitement there in terms of um, some of the market leadership announcements that we made around our our Ripple Plus um access platform um uh the symmetric speed services as well as advancements we've made in in our cable os uh platform our core software platform that we've talked so much about from a virtualization point of view um the tools are all there they're great enablers um and the pressures that that the internet uh you know the consumption continues to grow so Uh, I look forward to folks reaching out and helping us uh, partner with them and addressing those challenges with the tools that we have uh, available and the technologies that are out there.
0: All right. Thanks, Asaf. Um, And I I think uh, a lot of those videos are still up from SCT Expo, so anyone, please make sure to check those out while they're still online. Asaf, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, have a great Thanksgiving and everyone watching have a good Thanksgiving next week everyone in the chat room thanks for your comments and interaction thanks for joining so long everyone take care